You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Here's a painting. Not sure if you're familiar with this painting, but this is a painting that of the Last Supper, which is obviously a very well-known story around the world. It's a painting by Leonardo da Vinci from the 15th century, late 15th century. Uh, now, this painting is would probably be one of the world's most celebrated paintings. Um, if you wanted to go and borrow it, I'd love for you to come and tell me how that worked out for you, because... Apparently, this painting is worth somewhere around $450 million. <laughs> it is, um, it's owned by the National Museum in, of Italy, um, and it's displayed currently, apparently, in a Catholic church in Milan, in Italy. Um, and you can actually, if you go there, I don't know if it, has anyone been there to see this? You can actually pay, their, uh, pay money to go and, on, on a tour and, and see it. So... The Last Supper is a very well-known story. What are we meant to see from it? What are we meant to learn? What's it all about? Um, what, what are the key things we're meant to understand from that whole story? A really, really important story. Well, tonight, what I want to do um, <clears throat> is explore the messages that come out of these Last Supper passages. And these passages, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 13 and 1 Corinthians 11, form um, a group of passages from which we get a composite picture of the Last Supper. Um, they all add different pieces of information that we can put together and get a really good um, picture about what actually happened. So tonight, just with the amount of time we've got, we're going to look at four key um, aspects or events that I, that I, I want to explore a little bit more uh, that happened around the Last Supper. So these four events are the concept of the Passover and how that related to the, the Last Supper, the identification of Judas as the betrayer, um, the obvious reference to the bread and the wine as a, as a memorial instruction, and this beautiful... Uh, story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So they're the four things I'd like to cover tonight. So the first one we want to look at is this concept of the Passover. It's Jesus and his disciples gathered together to uh, enjoy this or share a Passover meal. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the gospel records are at pains to sort of emphasise this. So you get... Uh, I think it's in Matthew three times it's mentioned, in Mark four times it's mentioned, this, this idea of the Passover meal, and in Luke six times. And the Passover, so the Passover was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which went, went for seven days. The Jews held, hold it every year, and they have been uh, since the first Passover and, and Exodus, which was roughly about, I guess, 1,500 years ago. What actually happened? What do we know happened during that Passover? Well, we know that, in that, in that at that time, at the Passover uh, and associated Exodus, 
the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt and they were set free to uh, a new beginning out of that harsh, horrible environment of Egypt that they were set free. And on that Passover night, they killed a, a Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish, and they ate it with unleavened bread and they used the blood and they put it on the doorposts. And that was pretty important because the angel of death looked at that and passed over their house and the firstborn within that house was saved. Whereas everybody else who did have that blood over that doorpost, the angel of death entered and the firstborn were killed. So there was that aspect of the Passover night. There was the wonders that surrounded the whole concept of the Passover. So all the plagues of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea and so on. At the time of the Passover too, it's important to remember that Israel weren't going fantastic spiritually. It says they were really involved with idol worship. That's, that's a very important thing to remember. So they were very um, astray from where God wanted them to be. They were idol worshippers. And the other thing we know about the Passover, that the Passover and the exodus from Egypt ha happened on the exact day that God had predicted and promised to Abraham um, 400 years earlier. So they're the key, there's some really key uh, concepts around the Passover. And it was a, it's a big deal to the Jews. The, it's a big deal to the Jews. It's, it's the most referred to event in the Jewish history of, uh, when you look through the Old Testament. The interesting thing is in Exodus 12... Uh, the Jews, Israel's told to keep it as, a, as what, what's called a holy convocation. And that means uh, an assembly, but it also has the idea of, of being a rehearsal. So the whole point from this was that this whole concept of the, um, the Passover and everything that happened was like a rehearsal for a future bigger event, which was obviously... Uh, pointing forward to the day of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ came as the perfect Passover lamb. So you had people like John the Baptist, when Jesus arrived, he would point him out and say, behold the lamb of God, in reference to the, to the Passover lamb. There's numerous references all through the New Testament about Jesus being the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. He had no blemish, he was sinless. And there's so much imagery around that based on the original Passover. And of course, when Jesus came, uh, humanity was, in a sense, set free from sin and death. Um, and to be set free, they, people needed to respond to what was being offered, the offer of new life by the grace despite their sins. And... Around the crucifixion, in the same way, um, there were wonders of God that were displayed. There was, you know, the earthquakes and the darkness. Uh, the veil of the temple was miraculously ripped in, in, in half. Uh, and there was, of course, the resurrection um, afterwards. And all that happened, the day Jesus was crucified, it happened on a day, a set time, a set date that was appointed. There were key prophecies and time periods that Jesus himself knew 
and he was um, expecting his crucifixion, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, to happen. And through his uh, ministry, you hear him talking about his time. His time had come. And there's an example here in John 13, <clears throat> in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus was fully aware of when his time, that time of crucifixion would be. He knew all the details about it. Um, and so to him, the Passover was a big deal, this concept of this Passover meal. And when you think about it, there would have been, I guess, roughly 1,500 Passovers from the original one. And the one that he was celebrating in the Last Supper with his disciples was the most important, the most significant. Because when you think about it, think about the pressure on Jesus Christ, knowing that this Passover was the most significant and most important because every person, every sinner of faith that lay dead in the grave, that was alive and that was to come, all relied on him um, and his, his perfect sacrifice. And not only that, he knew all the details about how horrific his suffering would be. And as you can imagine, uh, there would be that associated anxiety. And we read of that and that pressure and that pain that he, he, he went through. I want you to pause for a minute and think if that was you, if you knew all those details. Say, for example, um, you were going to go to Adelaide and you know that there was going to be a plane crash on that plane that you were on and that plane was going to crash in a remote mountain. You were going to survive the plane crash but you would have horrific injuries and lie in that wilderness for six hours before you died. And you knew, in say, in two weeks' time, that was going to happen to you. How would you feel as every day that came closer and closer and closer? So when Jesus had this Passover meal, it says of him that he had fervent desire to eat that Passover before he suffered with his disciples. So if that was you and you knew the date of your death and you had a meal that you were going to have on the day before you died, think about how special that meal would be with all your friends. That's exactly the feeling of Jesus, of how significant that meal was to his friends and how special that was. So, yes, a great uh, time of stress, a great time of anxiety, but how precious that time was, as he said. I really fervently desire it. And there's, there's so much emotion in that uh, statement. So the Passover, so significant in the last concept of in the story of the Last Supper. The other great stress of Jesus' life at, the, at this time was, of course, that Judas would be identified as the betrayer. The thing is, Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. It says in John 6, there, 
uh, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. <coughs> and interestingly, in John 6, he also says in verse 70 to 71, I, didn't, I did not choose you, did, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So he knew that one of them was a devil, and, and as we know from the Greek, that word is the Greek word diabolos, which simply means basically a false accuser or a, tra or, or a transgressor or a slanderer. So this, this term, and we don't, we, this is a whole subject in itself, isn't it? Devil and Satan. Uh, but simply we just wanted to mention that this is a term he used and applied to Judas who, who was uh, a, a betrayer, a slanderer and a false accuser of Jesus. And if we had more time um, and on another time we would look at the way devil and Satan is used in the Bible. It's not a supernatural being as many believe. We need to, the way we need to understand that is explore figures of speech and things like personification to understand the real meaning of devil and Satan uh, in the scriptures. If Jesus knew, Jesus knew that um, uh, Judas was going to betray him from the beginning, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, to me, uh, anyway, that that the identity and the location of the of the Last Supper, where it was held, was kept secret. It was sort of random. So we're told that two of the disciples, which are Peter and John, when you compare the records, go and meet this man carrying a pitcher of water, and and it's just like this random event. And you can you can understand that when you look back at this, how Jesus knew that he would be betrayed by Judas. He didn't want the location of that Last Supper that he craved to have uh, disturbed. So <clears throat> this is a big deal to Jesus. Um, in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, it says, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he's betrayed. It makes a big um, point of that. And I think the reason it says that, um, in the same night he, in which he was betrayed, he took bread, the writer Paul wants us to feel for Jesus, knowing that this event too would have created great stress and anxiety for him. It's a bizarre thing, isn't it, when you think about the life of Judas. Like, <clears throat> um, Judas walked and talked and spoke with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He listened to what he said. He looked at that beautiful character every day, and yet he um, betrayed Jesus, betrayed him. And the question is why? And there's been lots of uh, suggestions as to why Judas betrayed Jesus, and you know, one of the ones which is, I suppose has merit is that Judas expected Jesus to be the king that would uh, rescue the Jews from the Romans and overthrow the Romans, and, yet, and he was disappointed when he realised that wasn't his mission. But I think 
the the Bible itself gives us um, probably the most accurate clue, and that is that Judas had was a lover of money. You you read of passages like John twelve when Mary is wiping Jesus's feet with this expensive oil, and Judas is complaining about it, and it says he wasn't complaining about it being given given to the poor. He was complaining about it because he was interested in the money, and it says that he was a thief. And he used to knock off the money that came out of it, out of that box that was saved for the disciples' use. It's, this is the statement, this is a classic statement of Judas when he goes to the Pharisees and the chief priests and he says in Matthew 26, what are you willing to give me? So you can see this focus on money uh, that Jesus has that mindset of him taking for his own personal wealth and um, profit. <clears throat> it's interesting in the story um, of the Last Supper. It's a very telling statement when Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer. It says, immediately he went out. Do you remember this? What it says? And it was night. There was a darkness that surrounded that guy's mindset. So something for us to think about. The bread and the wine. Obviously in all the records, or most of the records, we're told that um, we are to have the bread and the wine in remembrance of Jesus. It's interesting in the original Passover there wasn't any wine and somehow along the way... uh, wine was introduced and the Mishnah which is the written oral um, or written collection of oral Jewish traditions says the wine was introduced at some point they don't know to remind them of the blood of the Passover lamb and obviously by the time uh, they celebrated the Passover at the time of Jesus wine was um, part of that meal We read this nearly every Sunday, don't we? That the bread represents his body and the wine represents the blood of the new covenant. But I think the thing that I want you to notice that it says, both of them, it says, for you. For you. So there's this emphasis on Christ's sacrifice, isn't it? Of giving to his disciples. He gave of himself. And... You know, we've, there's been discussion over the years about why, why is there two symbols? And there's, there's so many answers to that. Um, the specific sort of focus, when you specifically focus on the, on the meaning of the bread and the meaning of the wine. But um, I feel like there's one primary meaning that is quite simple. That bread and wine are both used as, it's a double emphasis it's a double emphasis to focus on the fact that it's he gave and sacrificed for you and me. It's a bit like when Abraham was told, uh, your seed's going to be like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. There's an emphasis being, being made. And it's, 
You know, when you think about the bread and wine, the way they're made or processed, they have very similar um, processes. They're a brutal process. Bread is, is made from um, grain that is pulverised at the start. And, and wine is made from grapes that are crushed in, in its process. So I feel that there is, the, primarily, there's lots of uh, ways you can explore the bread and the wine and, and the symbology around it, and there, there are different meanings. But primarily, I think, we're meant to see this concept of sacrifice and the giving of Christ, and it's emphasised twice. And that's why I think, you know, when you read uh, of the New Testament believers in the first century, it says when they gathered together, it doesn't say that they gathered together to drink uh, to eat bread and drink, bright, uh, drink wine, it says they gathered together for the breaking of bread because the wine would have been incorporated in that. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what we hear most Sundays. What does this really mean? Well, obviously, the, there is an instruction that we have to get together to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ, that his body was broken in that sense and his, his blood was shed. That's a really important thing that we, that we uh, continue to remember. That's an instruction. But I think there's, there's more to it than that, isn't there? Where this doing is this concept of giving our body and giving our blood, so to speak, in the same way that Jesus did in the sacrifice for each other. When you think about um, the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, do you remember this? The whole context of 1 Corinthians 11 is where that, that Corinthian ecclesia was coming together for their meal, their love feasts, and incorporated in that love feast was the bread and the wine. And they come there and they were completely selfish where they were uh, eating this meal and not thinking about others going hungry. And yet they were having the bread and the wine in remembrance of Jesus. So the first, first aspect of do this they were doing, but the whole meaning behind the doing they were neglecting. So what was more important? And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says... Examine yourself. Yeah, it's cool that you come together and use the bread and wine as those symbols to remember, you, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. But are you living that? Are you doing that in your life? Examine it yourself, he says. It's interesting in John, John's the only gospel writer that does not record the bread and, and the wine memorial instruction. And I think that's because John, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's well known that John is on a very much higher spiritual level than uh, the other gospel writers. A much deeper thinker, or much a deeper recorder of these events. And in John 6, he does mention this concept of the bread and wine. In John 6, it talks about how Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he says... The bread is my body. Jesus said the bread was his body, just like the manna that came down. 
And then he challenges the, the people around him with this crazy, seemingly crazy statement where he says, if you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have life. And people couldn't, a lot of people couldn't handle that. And he said in verse 56, if you do this, you're like the, eating the bread and drinking wine, you're assimilating that into your body. It's the same way. You've got to assimilate me um, into your life for you to have life eternally. So we're going to come to the, the part of the washing of feet. And we might have that reading now, Eden, from John chapter 13. Um, and I just want to pull a couple of uh, thoughts from that reading. So John 13, verse 1 to 17. Thanks. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world under the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil have, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing, that, uh, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. Is it John 13? Is it John 13? Yeah, that's right. Um, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, to, not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. Is that right to verse 13? 17. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. <coughs> Thanks, Tony. Pretty, pretty specific to John. Um, he's the only one that mentions this story of the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus. And I think the precursor to this is in Luke 22, where, and, and this is only recorded in Luke, where they, the disciples are sitting around during this Last Supper and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. 
And there's this beautiful um, part of that story in Luke 22 where Jesus steps in and he says, the greatest person is the person that serves. And he said, you know, I'm a king. And you know what happens with most kings? Most kings sit at a table and the servants come around and serve him and fuss over that king. He said, I'm not like any ordinary king. I am the king that sits everyone at the table and I'm the one that serves, serves him. And that's, a, that's, that's the point he makes. He says, greatness is about service. Talking about a king in John 13, we read here that um, in verse 3 it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things. I mean, think about that for a minute. He is the preeminent one, as it says in many passages of, this, of the Bible and Colossians and so on. He is the preeminent one, the richest one. The most important one. The one the whole world pivots around and he's there serving his, his disciples at a table. That's what it says in Luke 22. And John 13 sort of is the sequel to this where he gets down um, and starts washing his disciples' feet. This is the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of history. And I love in verse um, 15, he says this, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Do you see what's happening here? This is, John doesn't mention the memorials like the other Gospels, but he incorporates the concept here where he says, You should do this as I've done to you I've given you this example and in verse 17 the same things if if you know these things blessed are you if you do them and then in chapter 14 and verse 23 and I think this is still part of the upper room or the, the last supper conversation because at the end in verse 31 it says arise let us go from here there's a bit of a break there but in verse 23, Jesus also says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. So it's like the bread and the wine. When you eat on a Sunday morning, or whenever that happens, and you eat that bread and drink that wine, and it flows into your body and becomes part of you, you assimilate that into you. That's what John is on about here at a much deeper level. Jesus needs to live in us. He needs to become part of us. And that's what John means in this story. He's getting at in his story of um, the washing of the disciples' feet. This is his comment on this do. And he focuses on the more important uh, this do aspect to proclaim the pattern of Jesus living in you. So hopefully from tonight, in this brief time that we've had, I just wanted to, to highlight this concept of how all of these things came together and created 
in that atmosphere of great anxiety and stress and hurt for Jesus Christ. Despite all that, he had this outward serving, giving mentality and mindset, even to Judas. Because it seems that he also gave the bread and the wine to Judas and shared that with him. It seems that Judas was there and he was one of the disciples that Jesus washed with all the others. And what I want you to think about is the disciples went home that day, that night, went away that night, and they came back the next day. They saw this scene, and those, those words, this do, would have been echoing in their head. You know, years ago, I heard a phrase that I've never forgotten. It was a challenging phrase, which was... And it was run by a Christian uh, in a Christian campaign. And it was, are you a fan or a follower? Have you ever heard that? Do you know the difference between a fan and a follower? A fan is someone who looks at what Jesus Christ did and the sacrifice that he made and applauds from the sidelines and says, I'm a fan of that. But a follower is someone who says, I will incorporate that and be motivated to walk like that man and do that in my life. So every Sunday we remember Jesus in the bread and the wine. But the challenge, I think, from this whole story of the Last Supper and those memorials is, does Jesus live in us? Does he dwell in us? Does he abide in us? So in family life, is it, about, is it about what we can get, what, sorry, what we can take or what we can give? In our church or ecclesial life, is it about what we can take or what we can give? In our school, uni and work life, is it about what we can take or what we can give? In our dealings with those who we love, is it about what we can take or what we can give? In our dealings with those we don't love as much, is it about what we can take or what we can give? And especially in dealings with those Judases in our life that have hurt us, is it about what we can take or what we can give? Are we inward focused or outward focused? Do we have this mindset of Judas, the Judas mindset, was, which was, what are you willing to, what are you willing to give me? Or do we have the Jesus mindset, which is for you, for you, for you? The challenge from this story is, are we a fan or a follower? Does Jesus dwell in us? So the message of the Last Supper is, this do. Thank you. It's a topic that 
the Christian world remembers once a year in East, at Easter time. They celebrate the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's something as Christadelphians that we celebrate, we remember weekly. As we gather Sunday morning or whatever time is appropriate, we gather to break bread and drink wine in memory of the death, but also in the knowledge of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these things are vital to our faith, vital to our understanding, and it's said in those early verses of that reading tonight that these things are for our salvation. But it is the story, it's the life of Jesus, so there'll be storytelling tonight and some lessons drawn out at the conclusion. So there's a great deal written about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and then again, it's referenced in each of the letters that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and disciples wrote that we have in the New Testament. So it, it is something that is absolutely full in the New Testament, a very, very complete topic. We, we take up the story where it was left off a month or so ago when we looked at uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room. And following the upper room, the events in the upper room, where the Lord Jesus Christ met with his disciples, with his apostles, the 12 of them, he instituted what we call the Memorial Supper in bread and wine. And then after Judas had gone out to find the means by which he was going to betray Jesus, so the Lord then took the remaining 11 and went out of the city across the Kidron Valley, which is between the trees to the front of that left-hand picture and the wall of Jerusalem on the east. That's a valley in there, the Valley of Kidron. They crossed the Valley of Kidron and came up into the Garden of Gethsemane, well known for the olive trees that are there. And the other picture depicts the olive trees that still grow there. They were there in our Lord's day and they're there today. And so the Lord went into that garden that he might prepare himself and also the remaining 11 of his apostles for the events that were going to come in the next few hours. The Lord knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to be betrayed he knew that it would happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. He also knew that it was going to happen within the next few hours and then he would be taken the following day and crucified. The Bible's filled with that message. He knew his Bible better than anybody and he knew exactly the events that would follow. So they went into the Garden of Gethsemane and it was a time for the Lord himself of intense pressure. We often feel within ourselves when we know that there's something really, really critical coming up. We know how we can stress out about what might happen. Tyler here's got the HSC coming up, another term. Uh, he knows the pressure that's going to build on that and he's going to have great drops of sweat on his forehead as he prepares for that. Um, 
And the Lord himself went through just that sort of, no, a far greater pressure because he knew that he had to maintain his faithfulness to the end because his eternal life and our eternal life depended very much on him maintaining sinlessness through these last desperate few hours. And it says in Luke 22 that the stress was so great that he was sweating great drops, as it were, of blood. And so he, he took his disciples into the garden and he asked them to pray. Well, they didn't really understand what was happening. They didn't really know what was, what was going on uh, because they expected the kingdom was going to come immediately. They didn't understand, though he'd told them often enough, that he had to die. They couldn't see that. They could see the crown, not the cross, though he had said quite plainly what was going to happen to him. And so he knew exactly, and he wanted his disciples there to spend that time with him in prayer. So of the 11, eight of them remained in, in a place where, he, where they first approached. And then he took three of them, Peter, James and John, and went a little bit further into the garden. And he said, I want you to watch in prayer with me. And of course, we know that they couldn't maintain that. He knew what was to come and he asked his father to find some other way. If it's possible, father, is there some other way that we can accomplish what you want accomplished? But he knew the answer. He knew because scripture said that he was going to be crucified. And so he was prepared to go through that. And so he added to his prayer, not my will, but thine be done. He sought comfort from the disciples, but as he went just a stone's throw, not very far at all, he could see them, they could see him in prayer and he threw himself on the ground and when he came back to them after his first prayer, they were asleep. Can't you watch? Can't you stay awake for a little? I mean, it's early hours of the morning, so we all get a little bit weary, or at least those of my age group get weary after about nine o'clock at night. Um, those a little bit younger here, uh, they can go through till 10 o'clock. I've got no's from the back. No, 10 at nine o'clock's fine. <laughs> go a little bit, 11 o'clock perhaps, 12 o'clock. When you get to, right, one o'clock in the morning's fine. They're just firing up. Uh, but then again, they don't want to get up until it's sort of 11 o'clock the next day. Well, the disciples were weary. They were bone weary. And perhaps they began to pray, but like many of us in prayer, they fell asleep. I wonder how many of us go to sleep at night with the intention of praying and find, wake up in the morning and we never finished that prayer. Well, the disciples were asleep and he came back and he, he woke them up. So I want you to pray. I want you to stay with me, support me. Three times he went away and prayed. Three times he came back and they were asleep. After the third occasion, he said, it's time now, wake up, wake up, it's time because 
the enemies had arrived. They could see coming up through the valley, up the hill, into the garden, the torches, and the number of torches indicated that there was a large company of people coming, and they were led by Judas. Now, Judas knew where Jesus was going to be that night. He'd left them back, the disciples and the Lord in the upper room, and perhaps he'd hoped to catch Jesus there and taken the group of soldiers back to that house, but they weren't there. They're not there. Where will they be? He will be in the garden. That's where he will be. And so they came into the garden to arrest Jesus. And Judas had told them, the man that I kiss will be the man that you take. Take him and don't let him go. Matthew 26. At that moment, Peter attempted to, to defend his Lord. And so he took a sword and he took a swipe at the head of the high priest's servant and he managed to cut off the ear, or at least part of the ear. And Luke records, they all record that that was something that Peter did. Bravado, he was there, he took the sword and he was going to defend his Lord. And Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. And Luke, who was the doctor, Luke was the physician of the company, says he's the one that records that Jesus healed the servant's ear. And Jesus rebuked Peter and said, put up your sword, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so true Christians surely never able to, uh, to, to fight. The power of his presence, when he, when he, uh, he was then introduced by Judas to those soldiers that were with Judas to come and to take him prisoner, Jesus said to them, whom do you seek? And he said, they said, they said, we seek Jesus. And he said, I am he. And at that point, those that came to take him fell backwards. They fell to the ground, literally to the ground, which is an indication of the power of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that like on other occasions, he could have walked straight through the midst of them and out of the garden and they wouldn't have been able to touch him. Such a thing had happened back in Nazareth uh, three years earlier. But now he knew his time had come. They'd come to take him, to take him away for judgment and for crucifixion. And so on that occasion, he appealed to them to let his disciples go. He said, I'm the one you want. Take me, let them go. And they did. They let the others go free. Well, from the Mount, uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, they left to go back into Jerusalem. Uh, the disciples fled. They escaped. They got away as quickly as they could. Uh, and I haven't got reference to it here, but there was one young man who'd followed the disciples from the upper room. I believe it was Mark. And it says that he went and, uh, and he'd followed them there. So... He also was another one that had, was witness to these events in the garden. Following Jesus' return with, in the company of the soldiers, into the city of Jerusalem, there follows three trials before Jewish 
accusers, and then there were three Gentile trials, and we'll look at those separately. So the first three trials were Jewish trials. Firstly, he was taken to Annas, who was, had been previously, he'd been high priest, and now he was the father to Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that year. We've got to remember at this stage that the uh, Levitical priesthood, the line of Aaron down through the ages, had uh, long since ceased to be uh, truly the efficient way of choosing the high priest. No longer was uh, the high priest high priest until he died and his youngest son, sorry, his eldest son would then take on the role. Uh, in these days, because the Romans had taken control of the uh, area of, they called it Palestine, of Israel, uh, we find that the priesthood now was something that was bought from Rome. And so the family of Annas and his uh, son-in-law in this instance and also his five sons also in turn became high priests. Um, so the first one, Annas, was the one who received Jesus first and tried him. He was then taken to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and he was tried there. And they made various accusation against him and those accusations all came to naught, obviously, because there was nothing of which they could accuse Jesus because he was faultless. He was sinless. Early hours of the day in the, into the morning, so he was finally brought to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70. These were the elders of the nation made up of the chief priests and the scribes, and they met with the, the sole reason of meeting really was to condemn him. That was all they were after. Just condemnation, whether the witnesses agreed or not, eventually they managed to find those who would condemn him. And note, this is an interesting thing to note, that is on a number of levels, this, uh, this trial, the trial before the Sanhedrin was illegal. Firstly, each of the witnesses was proven to be false, so case should have been dismissed. The trial was held at night and under Jewish law. That was not acceptable. It had to be during daylight hours. Trial should have been uh, put off to a later time. And finally, he was convicted on his own admission. Are you the son of God? Yes, I am. On that basis, they condemned him to death. And under the Jewish law, you needed to have uh, witnesses who brought an accusation there needed to be at least two witnesses, and there were none who agreed. So he, uh, on his own uh, account, they then convicted him. And they were then uh, sent Jesus on to the Roman authority because though we find uh, the Jews did still exercise capital punishment, they stoned people to death. Uh, we, we find examples of that. Uh, even in the in the book of Acts, Stephen was taken and stoned, and the Roman authority took no part in that. They they didn't care. But of course, as far as Jesus was concerned, though the Jews could have taken him out and stoned him, that wasn't the death that they wanted for him. They wanted him to be hung on a tree so that he could be condemned by the law, 
The law of Moses said anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And that's what they wanted because they wanted to demonstrate to Jesus' disciples that this man couldn't be from God because he was hung upon a tree. And that's the reason why Jesus was to be crucified. So then the Jewish authorities sent Jesus off to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because he was the one that was then able to order crucifixion, which was, the, as I've just said, the death that they desperately wanted for Jesus. There now are, again, three trials, three Jewish trials. Now we've got three Gentile trials. The first before Pontius Pilate, and he's taken, and the Jewish elders take with them the accusations that they have against Jesus. And Pilate listened to that, and he spoke to Jesus and said, well, what do you got to say? And he wouldn't answer. There was nothing he needed to say because they couldn't prove what they had uh, sought condemnation against him for. Pilate then, during the course of his investigation, found that he was a Gal that Jesus came from the region of Galilee, and Pilate immediately saw a means of escape because Galilee was outside his immediate jurisdiction. Yes, he was in control of that area too, but Herod had jurisdiction in Galilee, and, and Herod being in Jerusalem at the time, Pilate, like a good politician, tried to sidestep, tried to push the problem onto somebody else. And so he had sent Jesus sent off to Herod for judgment. And similar result, there was nothing that Herod could say uh, in condemnation of Jesus. Again, he was one who could find no fault. Herod found no fault. Pilate had not found fault. Otherwise, he'd been able to condemn him straight off. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate and said, let him go. There's nothing we can do with this man. He's done nothing to deserve the punishment of crucifixion. During the course of the, uh, the events of these next little while, uh, Pilate again was in uh, significant trouble. He didn't want to condemn Jesus. And the Jews insisted, if you don't condemn this man, he says he's the king of the Jews, you're not the friend of Caesar. And of course, this was something that uh, concerned Pilate significantly. During the course of his desire to let Jesus go, the, the people insisted, the head of the line, the, the Jewish leaders, behind them, the crowd, rent a crowd were there. What do we want? Jesus dead. When do we want it? Now. And so they would go on and on until such time as Pilate stood up and he said, I find no fault in this man. I am innocent of this man's this man's blood, I'm going to wash my hands. So he washed his hands in front of the crowd to say that he had nothing to do with uh, the, the condemnation of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. At that, at that point, at this point, come Passover time, there was a custom that the governor release a significant prisoner. Uh, I have no 
I don't know why that was the case. It seemed to me that uh, it's not something that you would necessarily want. Perhaps it's, uh, it, it was always a political prisoner, I suspect. But he had one really, really bad character there in prison due to be crucified, and that was a man called Barabbas. Interestingly, his name means son of a father. Barabbas was there, and Pilate thought, well, the people really don't like this one. He's a, he's a murderer. Uh, he was an instigator of rebellion. He deserved to go to the, to the cross. And Pilate said, well, I have to let somebody go. You've got a choice. Pilate said, do you want Barabbas? I can release him. Or Jesus? Here is a super criminal. Here is an innocent man. Choice is obvious. Barabbas. We'll have Barabbas. Release him. And Jesus said, well, you go and crucify him. But of course, it was a Roman means of death, and so he had to send uh, Jesus off with Roman soldiers to perform the crucifixion. Neither Pilate nor Herod were prepared to convict Jesus. Neither of them could find fault, and Pilate, on a number of instances, said, I find no fault in this man. At least three occasions, I think it's actually five occasions, where Jesus' innocence is proclaimed. Pilate's Jewish wife, during the course of the examination, she sent a message to her husband and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've suffered a whole lot in a dream during the course of the night. Don't have anything to do with this. Let him go. And finally, the people called for Jesus' blood to be upon their own heads. And not only their own heads, but the heads of their children. Be upon us and our children, the blood of this man. Really significant uh, and really interesting to see how these things were working out. God had a plan and it was going to be that, uh, that, that that plan would come to fruition regardless of what the people had to say or think or do. The events of crucifixion are horrendously cruel. Uh, I'm not going to go through it tonight because it's graphic and it's really, really uh, sad to witness what Jesus had to experience. We've just got summaries of some of these things. He was mocked and he was beaten by the Jews. He was humiliated and he was scourged. Now the scourging is, is being beaten with a whip, and a whip that's got multi-thongs multi on it, and then embedded in those thongs are bits of bone and lead. So he was absolute, his back would have been totally lacerated by uh, that whip. Uh, kids, as you're growing up, you go through history lessons, you learn about the cat of nine tails. That's basically what it was. Uh, very, very cruel instrument of, of torture. He had a crown of thorns that was plaited, and camel thorn, the thorns were sort of 40, 50 centimetres long in, at times. And these were plaited into a crown and then thrust on his head. So he's, from his head, he would have had blood streaming down, uh, down his face, across his back. So he was being absolutely torn to shreds. 
So badly beaten was he that he was unable to carry his cross. So he had to carry part of that cross from the place of, uh, of conviction through to the place of, of crucifixion. And yet he collapsed on the way. He was unable to do so from stress and from blood loss. He was just so weakened. And yet he had to maintain his faith through all of that. There was not to be a moment when he could sin. He couldn't curse those who were treating him so badly. He couldn't bring a curse upon the people who'd, who'd falsely accused him. He had to keep his mouth closed because we've got, as Scripture said, as a, as a lamb before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was prepared to do all of that for us. And we should never underestimate the power of what the Lord Jesus Christ endured to, to save his people from death. And so on the way to the place of crucifixion, he collapsed. He couldn't carry that burden any longer. And so the Romans took out of the crowd an individual and Simon of Cyrene, and he carried the cross the rest of the way to Golgotha for Jesus. Once there, he was stripped and he was laid down on the, on the cross. He was nailed to the cross, not tied. You see pictures of, of those who were crucified tied with their arms. He wasn't tied. He was nailed to the cross. And then the cross was put upright, slammed into the ground, and there he was to hang for six hours. There's a lot of information also that we find in the gospel record and anyone who wants can have obviously all of this detail but we've got um, scriptural gospel records of these events and where they're found. Uh, he was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning so all of those things that we've been talking about happened from uh, early hours of the morning, 12 o'clock, one, two, three, through till nine o'clock now, and he's taken and crucified. He was, which was customary, uh, they, they offered those who were going to hang on the cross, they were offered a, a drugged wine to take away some of the pain. There's no way you could get rid of all of the pain of what he was enduring, but uh, that drugged wine was offered, but he refused it because uh, he could not have his senses in any way dulled, lest being out of his mind he say something that was, uh, was not appropriate and that he had to guard against. Pilate had then had an inscription made and that inscription was put on, on a plate above his head. There's a little sign, you can probably see it in the picture there. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that was printed there in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Everybody, everybody knew what he was charged with. Interesting, it was a truth. Jesus of Nazareth, he was King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders said, went to Pilate and said, get that sign down. 
put up, he said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's answer was, what I've said, I've said. That's it. It's staying there. And though there was not much else that he was insistent on in the course of these events, that was something that remained. The Roman soldiers took his clothes, shared that amongst themselves. It's interesting that this is also fulfilled Bible, Bible prophecy. Psalm 22 says exactly that, that this was going to happen, and it did. So there's a whole lot of what happens on the cross is found in the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 22. Begins with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Words that Jesus spoke whilst he was on the cross. So did he recite the whole of the psalm? Maybe he did. But certainly the psalm reflects the events that were going, that Jesus was going to experience on the cross. Uh, there's no way that Jesus didn't know what was happening. There was no way he didn't know beforehand what was going to happen to him. And that made the events even that much harder to endure when you know what's going to happen. Uh, sometimes we, we're fearful about what might happen. For the Lord Jesus Christ, he was fearful because he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew the words that were going to, to be spoken. You're the son of God, come on down, then we'll believe you. And of course, even if he did, they wouldn't believe. They'd find some other reason. Jesus knew exactly, and that was a part of the torment through which he went whilst hanging on that cross. Those that passed by abused him. And again, Psalm 22 speaks to us uh, about that. And they taunted him. And again, words from Psalm 22 were used as they passed by and derided him. Whilst hanging there, we find that the disciples were some way off, but during the course of the, these events, they came closer. They, they did come closer until eventually uh, John was there at the foot of the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother. And John, uh, Jesus spoke to John and said, uh, take, take Mary and treat her as your mother. And uh, to Mary, he, he said, you know, this now is going to be the son who will care for you. Remembering that Jesus had four brothers, uh, but it's to John that uh, he gives the care of Mary into his hands. There were two criminals. There were three crosses there. There are criminals on either side who were crucified along with him. And it says that they also joined in the general mockery. How they managed through the pain, I don't know. But we've got those who are passing by mocking Jesus. And these two criminals also mocked him. And yet, toward a little bit later on, one of them, at least, uh, turned on the, the one on the other side uh, and said... Uh, we're here because of our sins. This man's got no sins. He's here innocently. And then he turned and asked Jesus to remember him when he came into, comes into his kingdom. So he had a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus had been talking about. Uh, he had at least perhaps heard Jesus preaching. And he knew that Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom. And so he said, when you come into your kingdom, 
remember me. And Jesus said to him that he would, that he would remember him on that day. So certainly turning to Christ is, is something that can happen even towards the end of one's life if one is sincere. About three hours after, sorry, yeah, about three hours after they had been crucified, the sky was darkened, it was pitch black, and it remained so for the rest uh, of Jesus' time hanging on that cross until three o'clock in the afternoon. So for three hours there was total blackness, and the people would have been scared witless by that. This was something totally uh, unusual and they would have wondered what was going on. Jesus called out at that time, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as I said, that's taken from Psalm 22. After six hours hanging on the cross, he endured so much and he did so willingly because this was the means by which he was going to save his people. And at the end, we've got the words, it is finished. And it said, he gave up the spirit. He, he died at that time. We can understand the grief of his disciples who for so long, Jesus had said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. And they said, yeah, whatever. Uh, that's not going to happen. But now it had happened. And they were devastated because they believed that Jesus had come to set up the kingdom. Not that he will set up the kingdom, which he will do, but that he was going to set up the kingdom then and there. And their faith was absolutely devastated at this time because Jesus was dead and they could see that. At the same time, inside the temple, the veil of the temple was rent, it's torn. And it's a huge, huge piece of material. It would have been an enormous, it would have taken an enormous effort for men to tear that. I don't know that they could, even uh, a large number of men on either side tearing it. They wouldn't have been able to tear it. But this was torn from the top to the bottom, which is an indication that, that this was a sign of God's anguish at the death of his son. And that veil was to separate the symbol of God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the most holy place, separated that from the work of the priests in the holy place inside the temple. Now that was torn and the way was made open for ordinary people, you and me, to approach the holy things of, uh, of God through Jesus Christ. He was represented, as we'll see on Wednesday night, he was represented by that, that veil. At the point of his death, there was an earthquake as well, and Matthew 27 records that. And the supervising centurion, centurions were by nature very hard individuals, and yet this man had witnessed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd seen his demeanour from the time that he was, that he'd been mocked and he'd been beaten and he'd been led to crucifixion, he'd witnessed this man who was crucified 
and who accepted it without complaint and he'd watched and he'd listened to Jesus for six hours as he hung upon the cross and when Jesus died the centurion said truly this man was the son of God an extraordinary witness to the power and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ so there's the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to his burial to ensure that because the, the Jews wanted the sold, these uh, prisoners taken down, they weren't to hang there on their holy day, on the, the Passover. Uh, they wanted them taken down. They wanted them dead. So the Roman soldiers came to finish the execution by killing those soldiers, by killing the criminals that hung there and they did that by smashing their knees so they would hang dependent on their arms and they would suffocate they came to Jesus and because it said in the in the Old Testament that not a bone of his was to be broken they came to Jesus and found that he was dead already so they didn't break his bones like they broke the, the knees of the others didn't break his bones to fulfill the scripture but instead, to ensure that he was dead, his side was pierced with a spear and out came blood and water, evidence that he was truly dead. Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the leaders of the Jewish people, went to Pilate and begged for his body. Pilate said, wondered whether he was dead already. Is he dead already? People who crucified could hang on a cross for days before they finally died. It was a terrible way to die. And the centurion said, yes, he's dead already. He said, okay, if you want his body, you can take it. And so Judas, Joseph of Arimathea went and took the body of Jesus, wrapped it up and put it in his own tomb. Pilate was asked to provide soldiers to ensure that the body was not taken away by the, uh, by the, by the disciples. The Jews were most concerned that the disciples might come and take him away and say he's raised. So they came and asked Pilate to provide a watch and they sealed the tomb. And Jesus was then in the grave for three days and three nights, during which time the women, on one of the, one of the days intervening, uh, went and bought spices to prepare for the embalming of his body. So we come to his resurrection. The morning of the first day of the week, there were three women who came, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, and they brought, they brought the spices that they had prepared and they were going to rewrap the body of Jesus with these spices that his body might be anointed properly. When they came, and Mary came uh, as well, and they found that the tomb was empty, and that the stone was rolled away. The women were worried. Well, how are we going to move this stone? There's just three, three women. How are we going to move the stone away? And they hadn't thought that one through. They arrived there and found that the stone was rolled away and they went and told Peter and the others that Jesus' body had been taken away. That time Mary was there and she came and also found the stone rolled away from the tomb and she asked, she was, was in expectation uh, that somebody had taken the body elsewhere 
for burial, why they didn't understand. Uh, the, they went into the tomb, they saw that there were two angels there, and they said they want to go back and tell the disciples that the body uh, that Jesus is raised, Jesus is risen. So they went back and the disciples were together, evidently distraught by the circumstances that they'd found themselves in, and uh, the women arrived and told them that Jesus was raised, he wasn't there. Peter and John then ran to the tomb, suspect that uh, John was a bit younger than Peter perhaps, or, or a bit, bit fitter. Uh, he got there first, he out, it says he outran Peter, he got there first and the grave was empty and the grave clothes were there. Folded separately was the cloth that had been wrapped around his head and also separately were the clothes that had wrapped his body. He was gone. Peter was unsure of the meaning of the empty tomb, but John, however, it says, believed that Jesus now lived again. Mary returned to the tomb. She didn't know what was going on, very confused, very distressed. Uh, she was one who had believed that Jesus uh, was going to die. She understood that. She had uh, been involved in, uh, in preparing Jesus beforehand. She looked into the tomb. She saw two angels. She turned back into the garden and Jesus appeared to her. And she was the first one to see Jesus as a risen Lord. We find in Luke's record, there are two disciples then who are walking from Jerusalem, about eight kilometers away to Emmaus, a town called Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them as they were walking. They were distressed. They were talking about the events that had been occurring in Jerusalem. And Jesus attached himself to them and walked with them and spoke to them and stayed with them. They appealed to him to stay with them when they went to eat a meal at Emmaus and Jesus made himself known to them and told them how they ought to have expected Jesus not only to die but to rise again. They should have expected these things. They invited him to stay and share the meal at which time they knew who he was and then he immediately disappeared from them. They turned around and hurried back to Jerusalem. Jesus then appeared to a group of the disciples and ate with them, and he showed them his wounds as evidence that he was the risen Christ. Thomas wasn't there in that instance, and Thomas said, well, I don't care what you've seen. You're all hallucinating. I don't believe it. Until I see the marks in his hands and the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus then appeared to him as well. Thomas, be, uh, here's my hands. Put your finger in the hand. Put your hand in, in my side. See, it is me and I'm risen. And Thomas said he believed. Jesus said these words, John chapter 20, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. There's a blessing attached to us, brothers and sisters and young people. We believe these things. We believe that Jesus lives again. We believe that he died, that he was dead for three days, and that he rose again and now sits at the right hand of God. We believe these things, and there is a blessing attached because we see it, but only through the eyes of faith. 
they saw him literally, and we had read there tonight in 1 Corinthians 15, of the hundreds of those that had seen and witnessed the risen Christ. He sent the disciples to Galilee and there he appeared to them again uh, and they went fishing. And there's the interesting story in John 21 about the taking of the 123, 153 great fish. Jesus' resurrection is key to salvation. There's a lot in this story. I mean, we've skimmed very, very quickly through the events of the crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All four of the gospel accounts and each of the New Testament letters makes reference to the resurrection. And the most complete of that is 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we haven't got time now to uh, revisit that. It was read for us at the beginning and it will do, it would be good to read, reread again. Uh, the chapter is the chapter of resurrection. The first eight verses deal with Jesus rising and being seen by many witnesses. From verses 12 to 19, without resurrection, our faith is futile, it's vain. There's no point in being a Christian if there is no such thing as the resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise and live again. From verse 20 to 23, Christ did rise. And because of that, so will his people when he returns. Those of his people who sleep will rise. Those of his people who remain alive till he's coming will be gathered with them all together for judgment at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. From verses 51 and 52, the ESV has, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, and that's believers, shall not all sleep, that is die. We won't all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. There's a beautiful future for us all. We'll be changed. And it says that when he comes, we will then be like him. Well, what's that mean? He's sinless and he's deathless now. And that's what we hope to be when he comes. Before he went, he gave his disciples a commission. He said, Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptised will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power. And this is Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven to be with his father. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in that instance, that was the Roman world. And since that time, it has gone. The gospel message has gone into all the world. And then from the top of Mount of Olives, just beyond the Garden of Gethsemane, 40 days after Jesus had, rose, had risen from the dead, he went to the top of, uh, of that mountain there and 
uh, with his disciples. And then whilst he was talking to them, he began to ascend into heaven. And it says there in verse chapter 1, verse 10, while they were looking intently into heaven, he having gone, even behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Two angels came and appeared to the eleven apostles, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the, in the way you have seen him go into heaven. There's the promise. Jesus return. And we believe that absolutely. Our take-home messages from tonight. Jesus died, was buried, rose again after three days. He was seen by many witnesses. These witnesses took the message of the gospel, the message of salvation throughout the Roman Empire and since that day continues to go into all the world. Their message was one of hope for a better life, a better life to come. Jesus is coming again soon to save his people from every time and from every place. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.